This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. Good morning, Dr. Jeff Bland. It is an absolute delight to have you on our podcast, The Power of Genetics. I am pretty sure that I don't need to introduce you a great deal. So I'm, I'm going to keep it very short, but a great welcome to joining me here today. Well, I just send back to you a good morning, Dr. Yael Tiafi. Thank you. What a treat <laughs> to connect from South Africa to Bainbridge Island near Seattle in Washington State. So thank you. From one ocean to another, as yes. they say. <laughs> right. So for, for those of you, um, I mean, everyone knows Jeff, but for those of you who don't know Jeff that well, I'm just going to focus on three key things that Jeff has achieved which is, which is quite, a, quite a task for me, just to bring some understanding to our conversation today. So the first most important thing, especially in my world, was that Jeff literally was the first person ever to write a book about nutrition and genetics. It was Genetic Nutritioneering. It was 1998. That is a full five years before the human genome. I don't even know how you conceived of the idea. Never mind wrote the book. So that from it was the first book I ever read and was the first time I ever imagined this connection. So you pretty much were responsible for my entire career. Let's let's oh, leave it at that. <laughs> Take full responsibility there, Jeff. All right. But seriously, Jeff literally is the founder of functional medicine. Not only the Institute of Functional Medicine, but the concept, the field, the movement, this global widespread um, understanding of how we could do so much better in, in the kind of allopathic medicine. Jeff is also the founder of PLMI, which is the Personal Lifestyle Medicine Institute, which is my favorite go-to. So even though I absolutely love um, IFM and, and functional medicine, I have become a PLMI devotee. And, and the reason being from, from my point of view is the functional medicine, I love functional medicine and it teaches us what to do now, but PLMI is about the future. And it's about what does the future of personalized medicine look like? I'm giving you my spiel and then we'll obviously get to you. Don't worry, you'll get lots of chance to. But I really, um, so I always travel to Jeff's conferences or PLMI because every time I go, I find inspiration. And in fact, the inspiration for my current company, 3X4, came at, 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 a, at a PLMI conference in Seattle where I started imagining this design, technology, functional performance, genetics um, space. So Personal Lifestyle Medicine Institute is really where we're trying to determine what the future of personalized medicine will look like. And then more recently, an extremely exciting organization, which is Big Bold Health. So maybe, Jeff, I know that like is trying to reduce like your CV to three points, and those are the three I've chosen. But is there anything you'd like to add? Because it, it, it's quite interesting how you've got kind of functional, then future, and now Big Bold Health is actually reaching out to everyone. To absolutely everyone. So maybe just if you want to give us a little perspective on that. Well, I, I don't think I could ever have a better uh, personal press agent than you. That was uh, <laughs> like just an amazing scenario and description of what I've, I've been trying to do over the last 40 years. So um, you know, just to kind of put a little capstone on what you have already very eloquently said, 
when I started off early on, and, and I was reminded of this when I was doing a, this week, a series of conferences on the clinical laboratory and functional medicine, and we did three days of kind of overview. And I started off by uh, just thinking, how did I get started in this whole field? And I recognized that in 1976, I had authored a book called Medical Applications of Clinical Nutrition. That was 1986. And in that book, uh, it was broken into three, three sections. And the first section was on assessment. So I talked about the use of the laboratory in evaluating health from a different perspective, not just in-point disease, uh, not just talking about nutrition as a deficiency like very, very scurvy and, and uh, xerothamia rickets, but rather how do we assess functional nutrition and functional health status? And that was really where my mind got started on kind of functional. I was very fortunate after that book was published to have the chance to meet uh, and, and spend some time with Dr. Linus Pauling. And then he was very gracious and asked if I would take a sabbatical uh, and come and, and run one of his research labs at the Linus Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine in Palo Alto, California in uh, 1981. So I spent two years and that was kind of the, uh, I would call my, my maturation years. I mean, I basically just changed my whole view of myself because of modeling uh, after he and his wife, who were just remarkable thinkers, just people in the universe that were just special in the way they saw their commitment to what he called the reduction of human suffering. And uh, so I, I gave up my tenured position at the faculty and, and then decided my, my life was going to be dedicated to try to teach uh, practitioners, health practitioners, how to employ nutritional medicine in their practice. That was a, my whole business plan. Uh, and I had given up my tenure uh, and I, you know, I had a young family, I had a mortgage, all those kind of things. And, you know, my, my I brought my parents up, my, got my dad to retire. He was an aerospace engineer and they were living up. And so my, my, my dad asked the pragmatic question. He said, well, this is all well and good, Jeff, but how are you going to make a living? And, you know, that was a really interesting question, which I didn't have a really great answer for yet because I was just driven by the, the mission. And I figured uh, that I, I could find a way to do that, to make a living. What that led into, without going through all the, the ups and downs, was eventually um, Susan, my wife, and I, after me doing a lot of traveling and a lot of lecturing, that was what I felt I could use as my tool to get both information in and information out. And so that was really the kind of the catalyst that started the company. She said, you know, you always talk about these great people that you're meeting all around the world as you're traveling and about how they really have a view of healthcare uh, that's different from what we're doing right now in terms of disease care. Uh, why don't we host a meeting and you can bring, you know, 30 or 40 of these, these people, these thought leaders from different disciplines in and we'll just sit down and have a whiteboard discussion. So we did that in British Columbia, uh, actually on Vancouver Island in uh, Victoria, Canada. And that turned out to be just a remarkable thought leader conclave. It was just, uh, when I think back, one of those magic things, Leo Gallen, Sid Baker, David Jones. Uh, I mean, there was a, the group of people were just remarkable, out-of-the-box thinkers. So that works. To, that was so effective and so energizing. We decided to do it a second year, and that would have been 1990. And out of that, I, I had this, this vision that what we really should be doing is starting uh, to call ourselves functional medicine. And so I brought that concept back to the group and they, they weren't really too excited about it, quite honestly, because they thought that that term already was kind of pejorative and, and had a negative stigma in medicine because it was either considered to be psychosomatic medicine or, or geriatric disability medicine. And I said, well, I, that's true. That's the past uh, way that it's been viewed. But 
But I think that I'm looking at the medical literature now. Now we're getting functional cardiology, functional radiology, functional endocrinology. So maybe it's going to have a different vision going forward. Maybe we should capture that as our way of thinking. So when I, I guess I was persuasive in getting that across. We then formalized the Institute for Functional Medicine. And when we did so, and this bears now on your, your very eloquent uh, discussion, we decided that there were really two fundamental objectives of the Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, number one was to develop a teachable curriculum that would be able to be transferred and to allow this to be executed upon the systems biology concept in healthcare. We, we would develop a curriculum that you could actually teach and people could become competent and, 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 and therefore they could do it rather than just think about it. So that, I believe, over the last 30 years, and, and IFM has just celebrated its 30th anniversary this year, mm -hmm. I'm very proud to say. And I think it's done a pretty good job in, in um, performing on that objective of de developing a teachable curriculum. Uh, the second objective, which I've come to learn was a more complicated objective. At the time, I didn't think so, but, but now I recognize I was a little naive. And that second objective was to make sure that we were always refreshing the curriculum and staying right at the leading edge, hopefully not the bleeding edge, but the, the leading edge, so that we were <laughs> pulling in new technology and new ideas and, and refreshing and, and revitalizing and, and never really staying with what I would call as a former university professor, the yellow notes that you probably could see some professors use, the same notes year after year yeah. after year, you know. And uh, I said, no, we should not be that kind of organization. We should be willing to completely turn over our curriculum with new information uh, as it becomes available and is clinically applicable. Well, that objective, I think, still is a very important objective. But quite honestly, what, what we found over the years was it was more difficult to sustain. Um, mm. mm. The reason for it is uh, in our system in the United States, we have this uh, group called the uh, Council for Canadian Medical Education that uh, approves for category one accreditation for medical practitioners uh, education. And um, they are very uh, apprehensive to take on things that don't fall within certain standard uh, practice and certain usual customary methodologies for proof of efficacy and blinded control studies and so forth. And so it's really hard to bring in new ideas that fulfill the criteria of the ACCME to be then accredited as category one. So over the years, what I came to feel, and, and I'm not sure if I was just the end of one of this, but I came to feel that we were losing some of that front edge, that, that the, uh, mm. we were really good at bringing that other material uh, into clinical uh, understanding, but the ability to kind of fold in some of the new stuff was, was being uh, left a little bit behind. So I recognized um, in, in 2013, maybe another organization was needed that wouldn't have the constraint of ACCME accreditation. We wouldn't seek out category one accreditation and we would be the bridge organization about bringing new ideas and we'd be the incubator of ideas. And that was the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. And the reason I liked uh, that term is that I thought that was all encompassing. I don't think anybody would resist to the concept of mm -hmm. personal and no one would resist the concept of lifestyle. So I felt that, okay, this could be a meeting ground for people of all different disciplines, backgrounds, people in technology, people in biometrics, people in informatics, and, and we can have this as a, as a meeting area to then spin off ideas that would ultimately then go into, into functional medicine. And quite honestly, I think that's proven to be true. I think over I the last too. eight years, we have incubated 
a number of ideas that are now refreshing uh, IFM. So it, it's it's the right process. We we have this laboratory over here called PLMI, and then we have this ACCMA accredited education group called IFM. So that that fulfilled those criteria. But there was one last part of this that for me was a missing link, and, and that is in order to transform healthcare, which has always been my advocacy, and I know yours as well, we, we share this in common, is that you need a lot of uh, consumer activity. You, there's never been a healthcare transformation that occurred because of health professionals alone it, it, or health technology. It has to be connected to health consumers that, uh, that find their values creation out of this concept of change and are engaged in, form, in promoting the change. And so uh, my belief was, how do we connect to consumers in a way that they could redefine health away from the absence of disease into the presence of, of function? And the concept of functional medicine was a little esoteric, I thought, to take directly to the, the health consumer. So I, I was thinking, what would be a mechanism by which they would be the key to get them involved with this thinking? And um, I, I, I came to the conclusion, this is uh, about three years ago now, that there are only three ways that the outside world directly interfaces with the inside world of our body and kind of how our body samples what's going on outside. Those are the nervous system, uh, our microbiome, which is constantly kind of communicating with the outside world, and then our immune system. And of those, I came to the conclusion that the one that changes the most quickly is our immune system. It has, uh, because every two months, our immune system is completely regenerate. So the cells we have in our immune system two months from now are different than the cells we have today in terms of the individual cells. So I thought, well, here's a place where if we could teach people how to own their immune systems, that we could get them entering yeah. into the mastery of their own interface with their outside world, how it's translated to their inside function. So maybe this is the, the tool. This is the, uh, the route of entry. So I was describing this, this concept to um, one of my dear colleagues that's worked with me for 25 years now, Trish Yuri. And, uh, you know, she's tolerant of me when I come back on Monday morning after weekend meetings and, and I'm downloading all this stuff and I'm generally very effusive. And, and, and so she looked at me and said, so Jeff, you know, this idea that you're talking about, it's a pretty bold idea. And she said, you know, you're a big guy. So why don't you call this Big Bold Health? And so that formed this uh, new company, Big Bold Health, around this concept of personalizing yeah. immunity. And so that's uh, that's the last part of the the cycle of of my advocacy is is putting this together with PLMI and with uh, IFM. I'm sure it's not the last. I just think it's the current. I'm sure there's more, Jeff. I have no doubt. <laughs> but I but my, my wife know that. I know. Don't tell Susan. Don't tell Susan. No. But um. But but also, I mean, Big Bold Health is is quite young still. And I see it's growing exponentially, but I mean, there's many exciting things, I guess, that we're going to see big. So you still have some time to work on Big Belter. We don't need anything new. I, quite yet. Yeah, I hope so. Cool. So Jeff, thank you for that. I, I, I think that was amazing. To, so how you linked to this pretty much how I stood it, but I think you you gave like a lot more detail and perspective to, to what that journey was and, and the why of the journey, which I'm always interested in. So you know, what, what I'm always amazed by is when I meet um, um, persons like yourself or some of the other uh, amazing practitioner, clinician, scientists that I, I interview on the podcast is that we all in the functional integrative world have this burning passion. It's, it's, I've never met a practitioner in this space who doesn't bring 
passion, empathy, um, compassion, enthusiasm. It's just, there's this incredible energy. If you've ever been to an IFM conference, you'll know what I'm talking about, or PLMI. There's just excitement and enthusiasm. And almost every single functional medicine, integrated medicine practitioner is driven by a why, by a vision and a purpose to change something. Often we hear it's their story. So they were ill, they developed some chronic disease, they didn't find success with allopathic medicine, they discovered functional medicine, they found you, they read one of your books, they went to a conference, and it changed their life. And then they want to bring that amazingness, those results and, and that work to, to their patients. But my question is, why? So this is the thing that I often think about is, there's so many of these incredible practitioners out there that are battling to bring their message to their patients. And then there's stories like yourself. I've, I've had a, a, a wonderful two decades where we've been able to take our message. We're just as passionate as everyone else, but we've been successful in taking our message and getting it out, whether it's to functional medicine practitioners, to PLMI, to Big Bolt Health, to the consumer. What is the kind of advice that you would give practitioners who have the vision, have the purpose, have the passion, not scared of hard work? How do they get that message out into the open. Yeah, thank you. You know, I have, like you, um, because of the travel that we both have done, uh, in my case, over 6 million miles of travel over the last 40 years, I've had the chance to meet so many remarkable people like, like you. And uh, what I've come to recognize is that there is no one path to self-enlightenment. There's no one path to success. There's no one path to service. There are many, many different routes to self-actualization, to fulfillment, and to personal prosperity. But I think what is important is for a person to find who they are and not try to be something that they're not. Some people are really big personalities, and they like to be on the big marquee and the big board, and they do really well at that. And their egos don't get overtaken, and they, they use that platform to really broadcast their information effectively that becomes kind of a amplifier of the success that this field can offer. And then there are other people who are much more comfortable in a private practice with a, just a smaller group of, of clients, but really doing quality work. And, and they see their life as uh, success one patient at a time. And uh, just uh, the recounting of like, you know, you might think of um, thinking of Dr. Stone and, and the fact that she's delivered over 10,000 babies, you know, yeah. like every one yeah. of those babies is a, for her a story that is part of her life mm -hmm. process. She doesn't have to be the world's greatest obstetrician gynecologist, but she has done something really remarkable. And so I think that there are different paths to enlightenment and to the feeling of success. But the key is to find out where your comfort zone is. I mean, the person who is really good at being one-on-one -on -one with people, but not really that good at being a big personality on the big board, but they say they want to be that person, that can be frustrating. And the converse mm. is true. And the converse is true. Who says, oh, I'm, uh, I want to be the perfect doc for those, uh, that, or the perfect practitioner for a very small group of people, but I want it to be famous at the same time. Uh, you know, that, <laughs> can be, uh, that, that cannot work either. So uh, I think there's just, there's so many paths. And uh, really what I believe functional medicine uh, provides, like uh, you already said it very nicely, it's, it's, a, it's a tool 
to create a, a system to find ourselves as practitioners. We all came into this field for certain reasons of wanting to help people to be of service and so forth. So it's a tool that allows us to be more intimate in how we can actually interface in these chronic health problems that are often very complex. And we can either gain extraordinary feeling of fulfillment by individual patients one at a time, or we can do so by thinking in my case, probably uh, I've chosen the path to be on the big board and and to try to excite and to inform many other people to do their good work every day in, in their interface with people. So I, I, to me, there are so many routes to personal success and the functional medicine model, if you apply it to your life as function in your life, gives you a system to figure out how to navigate through that process. I, lo I love what you're saying. And I, I'm gonna share a little story about myself. So I started off as you know, as a dietitian, and, um, and then later on went on and did uh, genetics and, and obviously new to genomics. And I even opened a clinic and we had patients and I always had this, it was almost like a, a sense of shame that I really didn't enjoy seeing patients. And for the longest time, I wouldn't tell anyone. I really, really didn't want to see patients. And in fact, seeing patients for me was more difficult than speaking to uh, speaking on a platform to a thousand people who I've never met before. And it was really, it was only in last year, 2019. I, I thought it was like coming out, really. We are actually, it was so, it was so bad. I was saying like, you know, I felt like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, my name's Yale Jaffe and I don't like seeing patients. And it was like, it was so funny. Everyone was like, we know you don't like seeing patients. Like, really? Did you know that? It's like, everyone had figured it out, but I had never had the courage because I felt less of a functional practitioner, less of a sign, less by admitting that I really, really didn't like seeing patients. I didn't think I was very good at it. And I, I, I just could not get my energy into it. So it, it speaks so much to what you say, which is it's about, you know, and, and, and you know that I love talking and I love the sharing and I love the teaching. And it, it's only recently in the last couple of years where I've actually embraced that and said, you know what? I know what I'm not, and I know what I was never good at, and now I'm going to stop apologizing for it, and I'm actually just going to embrace what I love doing, which is talking to people like you and, and teaching and having a platform to share message, and it was such a sense of relief, and I think, so I think it does work both ways, as you said, which is about, you know, you know go with your strengths where you feel most comfortable, and don't, and, and you know, don't try and be who you're not, which, you know, as I say, only took me about 25 years to figure out. Yeah, thank you. I thought that was a brilliant. Well, first of all, it's very courageous of you to share that. So I want to acknowledge that. But secondly, I think that was a, there's no better teacher than personal experience when you're really relating your personal experience. That's a such a great um, motivating teaching tool. So it, it, we can all identify with that. And I share some of that in my own life. In, in my early career, as a clinical biochemist and, and the head of a medical laboratory, uh, I did quite a bit of patient consultation, which I, I enjoyed, but I always felt that my message was limited. And uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, Dr. Linus Pauling, when I left my two-year sabbatical with him, as I was packing at my office, which happened to be right next to his, which was kind of cool. And um, as I was going to the car to get in the car with my kids to drive back to Washington State from California, um, so he looks at me and he says, uh, Jeff, um, it's been really great to have you here. I hope we'll keep in con connection. And, and uh, so um, 
what are your intentions? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going back to my professorship and you know, I've got my research program set up back there and so forth and so on. And he said, well, that's wonderful. And then he looked at me and says, so do you think your classroom is big enough? That was the last. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, and, wow. I, and I had the 1,200 miles to drive back to. Think about uh, that. And it was yeah. all in my mind as to what he was really saying. So, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a, a wise man, isn't it? Wow, that's that's amazing. I love that. I'm going to think about that now. <laughs> I'm going to think about that. Um, Jeff, I would be. This is the Power of Genetics uh, podcast, so I would be remiss if we didn't touch on genetics. And as you have been in this journey even longer than I have, I am going to ask for your opinion on where do you think genetics really sits or plays in this future of medicine, whether it's personalized lifestyle medicine, functional medicine, but really the next decade as we understand it of medicine, where do you think genetics is going to sit? Well, I think you've been a leader, quite honestly, in bringing that question to light and to adding the robust texture to that question that allows us to see a frame shift that occurred at about the turn of the century, this last century, is irreversibly changing everything that we think about life as human beings on the planet. And I don't think most people fully understand yet the implications of deciphering the human genome and the social implications of that. So let me just give a little color because you've been doing this very beautifully as well. If you think about things that change culture globally, certainly in the Western world, but I would say impacting all of the world culture, ideas within the last few centuries that, that would fulfill that, that big idea concept. The one that a lot of people would land on as science concepts would be uh, evolution, right? Darwinian natural selection, the, the Darwin concept, because it, it, it impacts every field, every component of, of biological life sciences. But it's done much more than that, if you think about it, because it has create, created an altered view of our social structure some of which is good, some of which is probably not so good, because we now have survival of the fittest. We now have people social Darwinizing, right? So we have taken this concept into the social language. Uh, people that are not scientists at all or probably don't even understand Darwin's concepts actually have been living through a principle that they think is Darwinistic, which is this competition, uh, competitiveness, I survive at your expense type of you know, that's how we evolve. Uh, you got to fight your battles. And so that social Darwinism has, has uh, then a caused a texture to our culture, some of which, by the way, I would say has been good, but some of it which has not been so good uh, in terms of the way we as people interact. So we, if we asked what is the great social transformative potential of genetics, uh, of deciphering the human genome, you can look at it in two very different polarity ways. One way is you could say, well, this is going to tell us why some people are better than others. That would be one way of looking at it, right? Yeah. Yeah. We will find the genes that will allow you to justify why you are better than somebody else because of your genes. Or, and this is what I think will be the dominant theme, we can say what we're exploring is the greatness that's potential in every human being within their genome if they understand it and they can maximize its benefit. Now, th those two things both come out of the same discoveries. Yeah. That is understanding something about our book of life. 
but it's how we then interpret and incorporate those concepts into our daily lives, both not only in our medicines and health, but into our social thinking, how we think of another person, how we think about race and class and uh, culture. And I mean, all sorts of things that derive out of that. And I believe that this can free us up. I think this can re- this can free us up from the concept of race. It can free us up from the concept of ethnic bias. It can free us up to recognize that we're all in this system together with our 23 chapters uh, represented by our chromosomes. And that within those chapters are extraordinary adventure stories for every human being if we can just fully activate them and find a ways to promote their goodness. So I'm fairly, you know, when people talk about bad genes and good genes, I don't think they're bad and good genes. I think they're agnostic. No, no, agreed, agreed. Well, I I know you do because you're (laughs) for this. But that's to me what what we're really going through as it relates to genetics. So I think a lot of people, you know, come down to think of this in kind of very rude materialistic uh, ways of, well, did you have your genes tested? Well, the genes tested is just an exploration into the understanding of your pluripotential how much yeah. you could be if you fully actual uh, with it were able to actuate all that goodness that resides in your your book of life so that's that's kind of my take on where we're going and we're still early on to understand how to do this uh, and then you can say well how does that relate to the evolution of, of medicine well you know this precision cancer therapy thing now where we're starting to get yeah. immune therapies based on different genotypes and and uh and, 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 and then you can even go to say, well, what, how are we going to introduce and incorporate CRISPR technologies and gene editing into our future? I don't know. All I know is all these things are opening up a new discussion that's more than just the base pairs in DNA. It, it has a huge implication in terms of how we see ourselves in combination with other people, with our culture, our society. And the more we can understand that and incorporate that magic into our belief system, the better I think as a culture we're going to be. Oh, I love that. And that speaks so much to my philosophy around genetics. I mean, I know you know that, but but I often talk about this idea that, you know, what does genetics do? It gives us insights. It gives us self-knowledge. It gives us the ability to know who we are and how we respond to the world around us. And, you know, in, in its simplistic way that genetics is seen, they think, oh, blonde hair, blue eyes, I'm tall, I'm fast runner. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how do I exist in this world? How do I respond to the world, the people, nature, the air, the water, relationships, trauma, stress, all of that is partly coming from our DNA, from our genetics. And if if I can understand that about myself, which is self-awareness, self-knowledge, I can make so many better decisions to be able to live, as you say, the best potential of my life. The, and whatever that is, because quality of life and best is different for every single individual. So I, I really, really do agree. It's not about who we are against someone else, but who we are in the world as achieving our greatest potential. And I think when that becomes a journey, which is how we like to talk about genetics, which is a journey, it is a journey of exploration. Who am I? I learn about myself. As we learn more about us, genetics, we learn more about ourselves. How does that change the decisions we make about ourselves? And we just want to make better decisions is what it comes down to. In my, in my, like We want to make better decisions for ourselves, our families, the environment, the planet. And I think genetics is just not the only, but certainly one of the most beautiful tools 
to kind of help us on that journey. So, I mean, what you say, I'm, I know I'm saying the same thing as you are, but it's so lovely to hear, um, hear, hear the way you put it. I, I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I had a really profound experience early in my career when I was the lab director for Dr. Leo Bowles in, in Seattle uh, for his lab, really the first kind of nutrition medical doctor that I ever met. He had quite a robust practice. This is back in the um, 70s in, in Washington State. And so he asked me to do a consult for this mother and her son. The son had uh, trisomy 21. He had Down syndrome. And so I was, uh, at that point in my development as a human being, uh, I was thinking, oh, poor Down syndrome children. They have this genetic abnormality that really limits their ability to be functional. And so I took into this discussion with the mother and her son that perception that that it was really a bias, right? That already had kind of a mindset. But what I recognized in, uh, in that visit and then subsequent visits uh, with her and the discussing uh, discussion with her son is that she was extraordinarily happy and excited for her son. And he was an extraordinarily happy and wonderful uh, young boy. And uh, yes, he was different, no question about it. Uh, but she was worried about, you know, having him as healthy as possible, which we were working on. But he had a joyous sense of the world mm -hmm. that was infective. I mean, I felt it. Uh, and his mother loved him dearly. And she didn't see him impaired whatsoever. She saw him as unique. And, and that was a very powerful teaching tool for me because I came away recognizing, no, hold it. I, it was I that came into this exam room with the stigma of, of him being impaired. And, and it was her teaching and his teaching of me that, no, he was different and unique, but he was not impaired. He was fully functional for what he was, and he loved it. And he was yeah. joyful, and he was creating goodness for others. So I, I think that this is the, some of these things that we perceive of um, are products of our own lack of understanding. <laughs> and and so, social bias, absolutely. Yeah, and as we get into understanding our our genetic, uh, you know, uh, one of the one of the actual founders of functional medicine that's uh, hasn't gotten the um, attention that probably he deserves uh, was a uh, professor of informatics from MIT, uh, and Wayne Matson was his name. And I had met Wayne in my work with the Institute for the Achievement of Human Potential, that had worked with 500,000 brain-injured children. Uh, this is a Philadelphia Institute. And he was having a child that, that had been brain-injured uh, and birth, he and his wife. Uh, he got involved, and, and I was a member of their scientific advisory board as well, and we collaborated. And, and we watched these kids that were seriously impaired over the course of, um, of their intervention with the treatment program that this institute had offered, which is nutrition and exercise and, and patterning. And these kids became stars. Literally, these infants that we saw, some of who were suggested to be institutionalized to the parents, we, I was there long enough to see that at uh, the time they were 10, 11, 12 years of age, they were not just performing okay, they were Amazing. performing unbelievably. I mean, they were doing complex gymnastics. They were doing playing instrument, musical instruments at high level by, by memory they were doing shakespeare in old english uh <laughs> wow. I, 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 I just was yeah. blown away and so yeah. um so he became a member of our uh, initial group of people in, in looking at how we would take these concepts into healthcare into medicine and in the uh, discussions with functional medicine and what he brought 
to me and the, and the group that was a fundamental principle in the starting of functional medicine. He said, if you look at any individual class of people, like you could say a disease, type two diabetics, he said, within that class of, of individuals that we would categorize in with a word, we would call them, we would label on them. If you actually look at the variegation, there's more difference among that group than there are you know, among people that don't share that disease yeah. you know, nomenclature. And so these, these words we have put to, to people like a disease, that's why I wrote the book, The Disease Delusion, because mm. these become stigmatizing terms that don't really lead to understanding they lead to separation and uh, and sometimes bigotry. So that's what we want to get away from. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I think that is a, a great end. I appreciate that you've given me even more of your time than I'd asked for. You know, I can talk for hours with you, Jeff, and often do. <laughs> but I, I I really enjoyed our discussion today. I think it's a little bit different from what we normally talk about. So I truly appreciate that. I think there's some things that I'd like to think about and take away from it. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining me and looking forward to our next PLMI conference. Thanks, Amelia. Keep up the great work. You're such a star and such a leader. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.